Welcome to Authentic. Hi, I am Dr. Greg Ammons, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Garland. And welcome to the podcast, where we discuss various aspects of the Christian faith, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical topics of the Christian life, living daily for Jesus Christ in a real, genuine, and authentic way. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Greg Ammons and we are continuing with follow-up questions from a recent sermon series I preached entitled Asking for a Friend. Questions that perhaps maybe you had but you did not want to ask. Uh, So we addressed some of those and we looked at some of those in the last podcast. Five questions about heaven and today we will be looking at five questions about salvation. Five questions about salvation. In future podcasts, we will be looking at uh, lifestyle issues such as transgenderism. And what does the Bible say about transgenderism? Or what about euthanasia, mercy killing? Is there ever a time that that is acceptable in God's sight? Other issues we'll be looking at on future podcasts include suffering and pain and uh, how how God uses those in our lives and and what, what they mean in our lives. We'll also be looking at the topic of cremation. I'm asked many times, is it, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? And, and we'll look at scripture concerning that. What about fasting? Is fasting a current practice that Christians should be doing today? What about the devil? Can he read my mind? Uh, things like that. We'll be looking at future questions in upcoming podcasts that I think that you will find interesting as well. And then other podcasts in the future, I will be interviewing some uh, theologians and uh, we'll just uh, talk together and kind of uh, discuss different aspects of ministry and faith and life that I think that you'll find interesting as well on future podcasts. But today we will be looking at the issue of salvation, five questions about salvation. First of all, what is the unpardonable sin? How do you know if you've committed it? Question number two can you lose your salvation? Is it possible to truly be a born-again believer in Jesus and then lose your salvation? Question number three we'll look at today. Can a person truly repent at the moment of death after living a lifestyle against the Lord for all the years? Is it really possible to repent at the point of death and have the same eternal life as, say, Billy Graham or, or someone else who served the Lord all their lives? Question number four, if if a person claims to be saved and then denies the Lord later, are are they going to heaven? That's a question I've been asked really pretty frequently through the years as a pastor. And we'll look at that question number four today. And then question number five we'll look at concerning salvation. Is it necessary to be baptized in order to be saved? or in order to go to heaven. What, what about baptism? Is that necessary for salvation? And what does the Bible teach about that? And so we'll be looking at these five questions today concerning salvation. So I'm glad you've joined us, and let's get started. First of all, question number one. What about the unpardonable sin? What is the unpardonable sin? How do you know you have committed the unpardonable sin? Can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? I've been asked this question many, many times through the years. In fact, I have known born-again believers in Jesus who have struggled with the issue of the unpardonable sin their entire Christian life. 
And, and it has just dealt them misery because they're wondering, uh, have I committed it? And, and they're afraid that they will commit it in the future. Uh, because Scripture tells us it is the only sin that is, cannot be forgiven. And so because of that, that frightens Christians. Uh, it scares them. And so what, what does the Scripture teach about that? So first of all, let me read the passage. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Let me read those briefly and set the stage of what was happening. Verse 22. Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, Jesus asked, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can you enter or one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Verse 30. He who is not with me, Jesus said, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now verses 31 and 32, here's the crux, but I wanted to give the context in which Jesus said this. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But it will not be forgiven him if he speaks against the Holy Spirit, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I believe, first of all, it is important to note the context in which Jesus made the statement about the unforgivable sin. The context was Jesus had performed a miracle. He'd cast out demons. The religious leaders came and basically they were attributing the works of God to the works of the devil. They were saying that Jesus cast out demons by by being a demon. And Jesus said that doesn't make sense. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. And then he went on to say that, that they basically had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were rejecting the Holy Spirit's moving to show them that Jesus truly is the Messiah. So, I believe that the unpardonable sin of which Jesus spoke was rejecting the Holy Spirit's promptings that show you that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Messiah. So, rejecting the Holy Spirit's promptings or or, uh, His conviction would be the unpardonable sin. So today, someone who fails to receive the promptings of the Spirit, someone who does not 
obey those to the point of salvation, they've committed the unpardonable sin. And it is unpardonable because that is a sin into eternity that cannot be forgiven because once a person dies, they no longer have the opportunity to receive the promptings of the Holy Spirit and trust Jesus as Savior. So I believe the unpardonable sin is whenever a person refuses to be saved, refuses to accept the, the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit, they refuse to be saved, and they die in that condition. So the unpardonable sin is not truly committed until a person dies because there's no more opportunity to trust Christ. Jesus makes it very plain, John 3.18, John 3.36, that if you do not have Christ, then you are condemned already. The Holy Spirit's trying to get you out of that condemned state by having you, uh, uh, prompting you to trust Jesus. If you reject those, then that is a sin against the Holy Spirit. Notice in this passage, Jesus does not say anyone who speaks a word against Jesus will not be forgiven. Notice he says it's the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven. So, I believe it's tied to salvation. And I believe that is consistent with other scriptures. So the unpardonable sin is failing to receive the Holy Spirit's promptings that Jesus is the Messiah and you reject those to the point of death and therefore whenever you take your last breath that is an unforgivable sin because you will not have another opportunity in heaven to make that decision or in, uh, rather in, in eternity to make that decision. So that's why it is unforgivable. Now, I've always heard, and the old adage is, and has been throughout, uh, for, with theologians for many, many years, the old adage is, if you're worried about committing the unpardonable sin, then you haven't done it. The unpardonable sin is a willful rejection of Jesus as Messiah to the point of your death. So, if you're worried about committing the, the, the unpardonable sin, that's a good sign that you have not committed it. Now, a follow-up question to the unpardonable sin is, can a Christian commit the unpardonable sin? And I think the answer is absolutely not. No, a Christian cannot uh, commit the unpardonable sin. I think some believers fear that they're a Christian and then something happens, they accidentally say something against the Holy Spirit, uh, they inadvertently say something they shouldn't have said, and oh my goodness, they've slipped, and they've committed a sin God will never forgive. And that is just not consistent with all of Scripture, and I don't think is what Jesus is saying in the Matthew 12 passage. In Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, all sins are forgiven in Christ. There is no unpardonable sin uh, if you're regenerated, then Romans 8.1 tells us there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, a Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin, and an unbeliever can if they reject the promptings of the Holy Spirit to be saved to the point of their death, take their last breath, go into eternity lost, then they have committed the unpardonable sin. Now let's go to question number two. Is it possible for you to lose your salvation? Is it possible for a believer in Jesus, truly born again, to do something that would cause them 
to lose their salvation. Southern Baptists are, uh, we're one of the few groups who believe that uh, once saved, always saved is accurate. Most groups believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation, and I believe that not on the basis that because I'm a Southern Baptist, but I believe it because I believe Scripture teaches, the Bible teaches, that a true believer in Jesus will not lose their salvation. Now notice that I said a true believer. Once saved, always saved, if truly saved. I think there are some people who maybe claim to have been born again. They've never really been transformed by the power of Jesus. And they've never truly been saved. But if you're truly saved, I don't think the Bible teaches that you will ever lose your salvation. Now, uh, one word of introduction into this question, and then I'll get into some scripture passages as to why I, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Usually, whenever someone believes that you can lose your salvation, usually they believe in a works-based salvation. Somehow, somewhere down the line, they believe that works not just faith alone, but works play a part in salvation. Usually when somebody believes that, they have a works-based salvation. However, I believe Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that salvation is by faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So therefore, if I did nothing to earn my salvation, then I can't do anything to lose my salvation. If I did something to earn it to begin with, then maybe I could do something to lose it. But if it was nothing that I did to earn it to start with, how in the world is there anything I could do to lose it? Now, let's look at some passages as to why I believe scripturally why a person, if they're truly saved, cannot lose their salvation. First of all, the most basic passage I know of is John 3.16. John 3.16 tells us that uh, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if Jesus promised me everlasting life and I can be saved one day and lost the next day, then that is not everlasting life. That's temporary life. And if I can lose my salvation, then Jesus lied to me because He said, He made a promise that if I believe in Him, that I will have everlasting life. Not temporary life until I lose it, but everlasting life. So, to me, the phrase everlasting in John 3.16 is one of the passages that really shows that a person truly, if they're saved, will never lose their salvation. Here's another passage, John 10. 28 and 29. Jesus said that uh, if, if you're a believer in Him, that, that, that you're, He has you and the, Father's, the Father has you in His hand, and, and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Not even yourself. I've, I've heard some people that believe that you can lose your salvation. I've heard them say about that passage, well, yeah, but I can fall out of His hand. Well, God's not playing semantical games with you concerning falling out of His hand or being plucked out of His hand. 
the point of that passage in John 10 is that if you're in Jesus, you're safe, you're secure, the Father has you, someone would, be ha- would have to be greater than the Father to, to take your salvation away from you. And nobody is powerful enough to do that. You're not, Satan's not, sin's not, no one is powerful enough to take you out of the Father's hands. So John 10, 28 and 29 Another passage that I believe shows us that we cannot lose our salvation. Here's another passage. 1 John 5, 11-13. John said that he wrote the epistles so that we may know that we have eternal life. If you can be saved today and lost tomorrow, you don't know that you have eternal life. <clears throat> Excuse me, you don't know that. And God wants you to know that. In fact, 1 John was written so that you may know, know for certain, that you have eternal life. Romans 8.16 says, The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That passage points to the fact we can never be lost again. Philippians 1.6, That passage, He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of redemption. That passage shows us that we cannot lose our salvation. In other words, Philippians 1.6 says, God began the good work of salvation in you. You didn't begin it. God began it. And God began the good work and He will continue it until the day of redemption. So I can't do anything to lose the work that God began in me. Here's another passage I like about security of the believer. Ephesians 4.30 tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. Now, sealing in the New Testament had a picture, was, was a very a picturesque to, to believers in those days because the Roman government would affix their seal to official documents. Someone would have to be greater than the Roman government to break a seal. And so, an invading army could possibly do that if they became more powerful than the Roman government. However, God said whenever He seals your salvation, no one is powerful enough to break that. The Holy Spirit has sealed your your salvation to the day of redemption. In other words, it's going to continue, not just today or tomorrow, but until the day of redemption whenever you see the Lord face to face. So that's another passage that, um, that, that I believe teaches security to the believer. Not only that, if you just look at a couple of practical issues, I've mentioned many passages that point to to the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Maybe just a couple of practical notes. One is, that doesn't sound like God throughout all of Scripture. The fact that you can be saved one day and lost the next day because you sinned. God was so long-suffering with the Israelites of the Old Testament, so long-suffering with His people in the wilderness, just because they mumbled or complained or, or, or groaned or sinned, he did not cast his people away. So losing salvation does not sound like God that's consistent throughout the rest of Scripture. Not only that, if I just take the practical aspect of my son. Once I'm a, a Christian, I become a son of God and and. I'm his child. Well, I have a son, Camden. 
He will always be my son. Nothing will change that fact biologically that he is my son. That fact is, that cannot be changed. Now, our fellowship can be broken, but our relationship cannot be broken. I will always be his father. He will always be my son. And it's the same with God. Uh, Whenever that is established in Christ, not by you, but by him, once that's established, then nothing can break that. Fellowship can be broken. But relationship cannot be broken. So, I don't believe it is possible for a person truly saved to ever lose their salvation. Question number three. Can a person repent at the moment of death and still have the same salvation as somebody else who's been a great Christian servant for many years? Well, that's a fascinating question and certainly one that a lot of people have have wondered about. And we talk about foxhole faith when people cry out in desperate moments of a crisis or maybe postpone to their deathbed the moment of committing their lives to Christ. And some people say that it does not make sense for somebody who's been a Christian all their life to be in the same state as somebody who displeased the Lord all their lives and then waited until the very last second to get their accounts square with God. So a lot of people have a problem with that and say, well, there's, there's really no way God would see those two people as equal. Well, is that true? Well, let me share a couple of thoughts with you about this question. First of all, there was a parable in the New Testament in which Jesus spoke directly about this. It's a parable called the, the, the workers in the vineyard. Back in biblical days, vineyards were, they were hard work, they were strenuous, they had to be planted, they had to be cultivated, they had to be harvested. And, and many times you would, as the day went on, you would need extra workers to work in the field. So Jesus told a story about a, a worker went out, or the vineyard owner went out and hired a worker, 6 a.m., and they agreed to a a wage, one denarius, which is, or denarii, which is a a Roman soldier's wage for one day. So went out 6 a.m. to work in the field all the way until dark for one denarii. And then Jesus said they needed extra workers as the day went on, and finally the last group hired just one hour before sunset. But they also received one denarii. And so Jesus told the parable about how the first group, they've really been out of shape and said, hey, what's going on here? There's no justice in this. Does the second group receive the same salvation I received or the same wages I received? And then basically Jesus said that doesn't God have the right to be merciful to whomever he wants to grant mercy? None of us deserved salvation, whether it's the one at 6 a.m. or whether the one that came an hour before closing time. Uh, you know, none of us deserved it. So what difference does it make whether they receive the same as me or not? But that bothers some people. They're brought into a state at the last moment. They escape the punishment of hell. They enter into the kingdom of heaven. And with their last breath, repentance, if it's truly genuine, then yes, they have the same heaven as I have. Uh, now, their rewards may be different, but as far as salvation goes, yes, uh, 
they share the same as me, who I've served the Lord my entire life. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that I've earned in any way heaven. I haven't. It's a gift of grace to me, just as it was, is to the person who's saved at the very last moment. You look at another passage in relation to this question, the thief on the cross. He, in the last minutes of his life, Luke 23, 33 through 43, very last minutes of his life, but Jesus assured him that he would be with Christ in paradise. And there we have exhibit A in the New Testament of somebody who actually, the very last moment, last breath, asked Jesus to save them, and the Lord Himself promised they would be in His kingdom. Certainly it's possible, I believe, for a person at the last moment of their life to repent, truly repent, believe, and enter into all the benefits and the membership of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.15, he did talk about those people who would be saved, I guess you might say, by the skin of their teeth. In other words, they saved as by fire, he said. And so I think a deathbed believer would be in that category. We tend to think all that matters is just getting there to heaven because there's this unbridgeable chasm between getting into heaven and missing it altogether. But Jesus tells us to work and store up treasures for ourselves in heaven because he promises emphatically that there will be rewards there. You don't get into heaven by your works, but your reward in heaven will be according to your works here. And that's according to the New Testament. So what that says to me is that although people can make it to heaven by the skin of their teeth if they truly repent in their last dying breath, nevertheless the degree of their rewards will not nearly be as great as those who have been serving Jesus faithfully for many, many years. Now, one further thought about this. If someone has rejected Christianity their entire life, but on their deathbed, they just want to play it safe. They profess Jesus just in case that He is the right way to go. Just to cover all their bases, just to be safe, just to make sure they trust Jesus just so they can go to heaven. No, absolutely not can they go to heaven on on that basis that person i believe has no hope of getting into heaven first of all uh, let's understand redemption does not come necessarily through profession of faith but through a possession of faith and what i mean by that is that it's not words that save you it's it's the possession of faith that saves you So, it's not that there's a magical formula of words you can say just to cover all of your bases. You have to truly repent of your sins, reject all other ways of of eternal life, all other ways of possible salvation, and receive Jesus only as the the way of salvation. So, you must do that in order to be saved. So, I believe that it's particularly so when somebody makes a verbal profession strictly as a means of covering their their bets or playing it safe or guarding against the negative consequences of hell. From a biblical standpoint, salvation requires authentic repentance. 
Justifying faith is a repenting faith. If there's no repentance, if there's no trusting Jesus alone for salvation, then there's no indication that that person is ever going to go to heaven. So you can't just trust Christ to cover your bases. He has to be, you have to place all of your faith and trust all of your weight upon Jesus for salvation or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. All right, let's go to question number four. If a person claims to be saved all of their life or most of their life and then they deny Jesus later on, are they truly saved? If, is there salvation for a Christian who has turned away from Christ after they have already trusted Jesus as Savior? Well, uh, I, I do believe that it is possible for a person to be saved, to deny the Lord later on, and but yet truly be saved in the process. You say, well, well, Pastor, why do you believe that? And I believe exhibit A is the Apostle Peter. Peter followed Jesus. Peter was the one who made the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're the only way of salvation. And then a few chapters later, you see Peter denying Jesus and warming his hands by the fire and even cursing and denying that Jesus, that he was with Jesus. In fact, Peter was so emphatic that he uttered profanities to underscore the fact he didn't even know Jesus. So if you talk about somebody who didn't seem to want to repent and had turned away from Jesus... Boy, Peter, he is your classic example. And so, you know, you look at that, but yet later on, after the resurrection, Jesus looked at Peter and, and, and said, Peter, feed my sheep. Uh, he restored him three times for every time he denied him. And so, Peter was a follower of Jesus, denied Jesus, later on repented and God used him powerfully after that. So, yes, I definitely believe it's possible for a person to be saved, deny Jesus, but yet really, truly remain saved. Again, I want to remind you of Philippians 1.6. New Testament promises us that he who has begun a good work in us will perfect it to the very end. And I know there are many Christians who believe that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation. I don't believe that. And, and I believe that God begins the good work. And if a person truly is saved, even if they deny the Lord later, then they truly are still a child of God. Now, a couple of the points I think are important. First of all, uh, just because a person claims to be saved doesn't mean they truly were saved. I think there are people who made a decision at seven years old, eight years old, nine years old. They walked an aisle. They followed in baptism. There was never really any change in their life. There was never any really fruit in their life. They lived their whole life like a lost person. I, I don't believe that person's ever truly genuinely saved. Because Paul makes it very clear that if a person is truly saved that a transformation takes place on the inside. They become a brand new person. The old is gone and the new has come. 
And so there must be a true transformation uh, if a person is truly saved. I know there are a lot of people out there. They, they, well, they went to church. They went to Bible school. They made a decision. But nothing really ever changed in their life. They, they lived their entire life like a lost person. But yet they're holding on to that walking an aisle and being baptized at nine years old when there never really was genuine salvation. So I think you really need to be careful in claiming to be saved, but there never ever truly being a transformation of your life. Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen, By their fruits you shall know them. And if a person claims to be saved, but there was never any fruit that followed, then that person, I don't believe, has ever been saved. Because if you're saved, fruit follows. So if there's fruit there, if there was ever fruit there, if there was ever transformation, then yes, salvation took place. But be careful of those people that made a profession, nothing ever changed, never any fruit. I don't think they were genuinely saved. So I think that, that factors into question number four as well. Question number five, our last one today. Is it necessary to be baptized in order to be saved? Is it necessary to be baptized in order to be saved? Now, most denominations believe that it is. There are some denominations that, that believe that, that salvation occurs outside of baptism. But most denominations believe and most faith groups believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And this is the doctrine known as baptismal regeneration. That you are regenerated partly through baptism and through faith. Now, I do not believe that. There are several reasons I don't. Mostly uh, is because uh, Scripture, I don't think, teaches that salvation, that baptism is required for salvation. Let me share some of those passages with you. Um, To me, requiring anything other than faith in Jesus is works-based. And salvation is of works, or rather is of faith, not of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that. That it is by grace through faith you're saved, not not any works whatsoever, lest any man should boast. So if you require salvation to be, I mean, baptism to be part of your salvation, then that is works-based. And salvation is of faith alone. Now, the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, I mentioned him in question number four. He was saved, but never baptized. He, of course, turned to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is, he's dying on the cross, and Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, Roman Catholics interpret paradise to be purgatory, so Jesus wasn't telling the thief on the cross that he would be in in heaven. He was just saying he would see you later in purgatory. Well, there's nothing in the rest of Scripture that shows that to be true, even that there is a purgatory. And not only that, every other time that the word paradise is mentioned in Scripture, it does refer to heaven. So I believe Jesus was telling the thief on the cross that he would go to heaven, but the thief on the cross was never baptized. 
Now, Roman Catholics uh, believe that baptism is the instrumental cause of your justification. In other words, baptism is the instrument by which a person is given justifying grace and placed into a reconciled relationship with God. So therefore, the sacrament of baptism is very important to Roman Catholics. That's why a Roman Catholic Church will hurry to baptize children that are born dying or, they are, they are, or they'll baptize them as soon as they're, they're dying or they'll issue extreme unction to someone they feel is dying. Because of that, uh, they believe because of the salvation is through baptism. That's why they do things like that. They also believe in what's called votum baptisma. Or in other words, that's just the desire for baptism. There may be a person who's believing, they want to be baptized, but they're hindered from being baptized. Roman Catholics believe that just that desire to be baptized is enough. For example, if you're on your way to be baptized, you have a great desire to be baptized, you're in a car wreck, you die before you get there, they consider that desire to be baptized the same as being baptized. It's called uh, votum baptisma. Just that desire to be baptized counts and therefore uh, you're saved because of that. I don't think Scripture teaches anything like that. Now, there are a couple of the passages that I want to mention to you about baptism and not being necessary for salvation and why I believe that it's not. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about verse 14 and verse 17 both, Paul talks about that he was sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Verse Roman, I mean, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. Here's my question. If baptism is required for salvation, Paul would have been foolish to make that statement. Paul would have been foolish to say, I didn't come to baptize, I just came to preach the gospel of Jesus. If baptism's tied to salvation, why in the world would Paul say that? And then 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says, I'm thankful I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And maybe I baptized a few more, I can't remember. Boy, it sure doesn't sound like if baptism is required for salvation... Sure doesn't sound like that Paul is really placing much of an emphasis on it. He's just saying, I didn't baptize any of you. I'm thankful that I didn't. Of course, he's talking about church division and splits there. But, but again, if baptism is required for salvation, Paul would have wanted to baptize everybody he could. So those passages do not make sense if baptism is required for salvation. A little bit later on, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, Paul is writing what he considers to be the gospel aspects, uh, essential aspects of the gospel, and he never mentions uh, baptism. So, therefore, it makes, makes you wonder, maybe baptism is not the essential aspect of the gospel since Paul didn't men- mention it in 1 Corinthians 15, 18, when he talks about the other aspects of the gospel. Now, one passage I think I need to cover because this is the key passage for a lot of people, especially charismatic believers, Pentecostals, um, others that believe 
Acts 2.38 is proof text A that you must be baptized in order to be saved. So most of them will point to Acts 2.38, so I need to address this verse as to why I do not believe that it teaches that salvation is, uh, that, that baptism is required for salvation. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does for the remission of sins mean? I believe it hinges on the Greek word for, F-O-R, which is ice, E-I-S. Ice can be used as a causal participle or a purpose participle. In other words, it can be it can be used to mean in order to get, or it can be used in or because you have. Let me say that again. Ice or for can be translated in order to get something or because you have something. Let me give you an example. I can say I am taking two aspirin for my headache. Okay? Well, that can mean I'm taking two aspirin in order to give me a headache or I'm taking two aspirin because I have a headache. Now, Acts 2.38, the word ice is used, meaning, in the, in the grammar, Greek grammar that's used there, meaning, because you have. I don't take two aspirin in order to give me a headache. I take two aspirin because I have a headache. So, I repent because and be baptized because I have been saved, not in order to become saved. Repent and be baptized, not in order to get saved, but repent and be baptized because you have been saved. So, Acts 2.38 in the Greek language literally reads, Repent and be baptized because you have, been, because you have had your sins remitted and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, I do not believe that Scripture teaches that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Well, I hope that these, have, um, these answers have helped you with the questions maybe that you've had concerning salvation. Join us for a future podcast in the days to come as I talk about other lifestyle issues and talk about suffering, talk about creation and, uh, and cremation as well. Fasting, can Satan read my mind? Other questions that we'll be looking at in these podcasts in the days to come. So thank you again for joining us, Authentic Living for Christ in a Real Authentic Way. You have been listening to Authentic with Dr. Greg Ammons. Join us next time for a new podcast whenever we discuss various aspects of the Christian life, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical ways to live for Jesus Christ on a daily basis in a real, genuine, and authentic way.